0: Good morning, Church of the Red Door. Beautiful name of Jesus. Now, yeah, I gotta tell you, you guys are way out of practice. You know, at church at the Red Door, we stand up on the last song. Half of you are asleep. The chairs go up. The feet go back. I expect at the end of the second song to hear zzzz and you guys standing up. So anyway, well, let me uh, let me open in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this. Glorious day, even though it's hot here in the Coachella Valley. Father, we pray that in a very profound way that you would be with us today, that you would make your presence uh, very known to each one of us. And that includes me. Lord, I'm utterly, as I say every week and have for from the beginning, anytime I stand up and try to parse your word totally dependent upon the direction of your spirit, Uh, direct, redirect, wherever you want to go this morning, but open your word to our hearts and our minds, transform us into the image of your beloved son, prepare us Lord for heaven, make us the kind of people that will make heaven, heaven in Jesus name, amen. Are you ready for this? We're going to continue on. I put in your missive this week. Look, have you ever had a faith crisis? Maybe some of you are going through somewhat of a faith crisis. Now, faith crises can emerge at any time, at any place. It can be a physical ailment. It can be someone close to you who died. It could be something that you've been praying for and didn't come to pass. Or it can just be a moment in time where you just all of a sudden ask yourself, a thought will emerge in your mind is this true? I mean, could it be possible that I have been deceived? Maybe I grew up with a sense of God and maybe none of this actually exists. Maybe Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Maybe he was just an interesting teacher that gave insight and moral direction to a people 2000 years ago. But somehow we have conflated that made that much larger than it is uh, through time immemorial and just drawn together these stories and some Somehow I've bought into it, or maybe I'm part of some cultic activity. I don't know. Maybe, 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 and you just began to question your faith. Maybe you've never gone through that. But all of us, to one degree or another, are challenged with those thoughts. Maybe you've never gone down that road, but I think you could agree we've all been challenged with those thoughts. I, what we're going to see this morning as we continue through the gospel of Luke is we're going to see John the Baptist going through a crisis of faith. Not necessarily about God, God's existence, but certainly his ministry and then he, he was the one that pointed out, Jesus, I'm not unworthy, I'm unworthy to even untie his sandals. Uh, I need to be baptized by you at Jesus' baptism. Uh, Lord. It's the Lamb of God. And now he's in prison. We don't know that from Luke chapter 7, but we know it from a parallel account in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is now in prison. I mean, uh, John the Baptist is now in prison and he is asking his disciples to go and see if he's the one or should we expect somebody else. It's it's a moment in his life. Now, In some ways, some would say, well, can you really blame him? I mean, he had expectations that this was the Messiah and that he was going to overthrow Rome. No telling the fullness of what John was seeing in the future, but certainly he didn't anticipate that Jesus was going to be out meandering around, going to weddings. He had heard probably turning water into wine. I mean, was he a hedonist? Who is this guy? I mean, I'm out here, one of the great prophets of the creator of the universe, and I am out in the wilderness. I've given up my life for this. I'm not, I'm unmarried. I, I have, I've been chased from the time I've been small. I have been devoting everything to this ascetic lifestyle just so I can speak into the people of Israel. And what's Jesus doing? He's hanging out. I'm hearing things that he's hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. And he certainly hasn't risen to a place of dominating Rome and the fulfillment of all these prophecies. I don't know what was going through John's mind, but certainly some of those things must have been going through John's mind. So Luke chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, starting here in verse 18. Now the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. What were these things? Jesus was doing amazing things. We just saw it last week. He raised this young man from Nain and just completely gave his mother a new lease on life, had compassion on her, and was really demonstrating that he had the power over life and death. These things got back to John. Now, again, in seven, it doesn't tell us he's in prison, but we know he is. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one, or do we need to start looking for somebody else? You ever had that? Jesus... Are you the one? Well, why haven't you answered this? Why, why am I in this condition? Why, why won't my child or my grandson or my spouse or this close friend even have ears to hear what you're saying? I've been praying about this for decades. Where are you? Are, is anybody out there? That's kind of the cry that we get from John here. And when the men came to Jesus, him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask you, are you the expected one or do we need to look for somebody else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind and he answered and said, now here's his answer. And I've preached on this a number of times, but I will tell you his answer could have been, And many of you would perceive that this would be the kind of God that's out there. Who do you think you are? After all I've done for you, after all the revelation. I mean, no. What is Jesus' response? Jesus' response is very simple. He quotes, actually he quotes a composite of Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah chapter 26. We actually looked at it last week about the resurrection of the dead. He also quotes Isaiah 35 about this new and fertile place and, and people are gonna be leaping up from their diseases and God's gonna start making things all right. He quotes Isaiah 61 where it says the, the poor, the afflicted in the NASB, uh, actually the poor, the needy, the humble are gonna have the good news, the gospel preached to them. He says all these things. That's his answer to John's question. Not an accusation, but John, look at what's happening. A fulfillment of all the prophets of which you are the final one. And in fact, John, you're the greatest of all the prophets. It's all been leading up, but you've actually with your own eyes been able to usher in this figure that Isaiah was seeing some 700 years ago. That's the subtext. And he answered and said, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that. How would people take offense at Jesus? And I'm gonna show you one way in which they clearly did. And it carries on into the 21st century. How can we so easily be offended by Jesus. He said, well, I've never been offended by Jesus. Well, let's wait and think about all the ways your mind might be attacked to be offended by Jesus. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. That no good, ne'er thee well, after all I've done for him. I mean, for heaven's sake, we're cousins. And who who does he think he is? I mean, of course I'm the Messiah. You would think. Well, no. That's not how Jesus responds at all. And let me tell you something. That's not how Jesus responds to you when you have a crisis of faith. How does Jesus respond to you? We we saw it in the second song this morning. He's faithful. Even when we're unfaithful, the Bible says, he's faithful, he's doing the saving. His response is to encourage John, not to accuse him. Let me tell you something, this is important for me. I've had moments in my life, what have I done? Why did I go into the ministry? I could have been, and I, long list begins to emerge in my mind, and and things aren't going, and Lord, I thought you were gonna do this, and look, you're not doing this at all, and are you out there, is anybody out there? And what does Jesus do? He never has condemned me. He's always encouraged me. Sometimes through you, a church, uh, the community, the body, of the, the body of Christ, his hands and feet and arms. What did you go out into the wilderness to see, Jesus said, a reed shaken by a wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed live in luxury. They're found in royal palaces and, and Palm Springs. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and one who is more, well, actually more than a prophet. He's going to take John, who's now in some ways questioned Jesus. Is, we've put Jesus here. Should we bring Jesus to here and be realistic about this guy? And what does Jesus do in response? He flips it. Jesus is up here. Now John's having a crisis and Jesus begins to lift John. He begins to actually commend him. What did you go out to see a prophet? I'm telling you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting Prophets. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, He's John's that guy. This is who it is. So first, he goes back to the, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, if you will. He goes back and validates his own existence through what the prophets had seen by quoting Isaiah 26 and 35 and 61. And now he validates in a commensurate way. He validates John by going back and quoting The prophets as well. This is who the prophets were seeing. John is that guy, but he doesn't stop there. I say to you among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Now, I don't have time this morning to get into that. I've talked about that at length at various points, but I will tell you why is that? What was it about John that was greater than Everybody, Abraham, the very first Jew, the patriarchal figure, the archetype of our faith, Moses, I mean, King David, Solomon, and all of his wisdom, what? Isaiah and the prophets, major and minor. What was greater about John? What's what I said earlier? I think it's the fact that he was the one that was chosen to actually cross over and not just prophesy about a future coming of the Messiah but a guy who's able to say, this is the man. And their lives overlapped. And yet he who is least in the kingdom, why? Because John died before the atonement. John died before the permanent indwelling of the spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And so you have an opportunity, according to Jesus, to even be greater than John. The least in the kingdom is greater than John because there's coming a whole new package called the new deal, if you will, the new covenant in my blood, and John will be dead by the time that's inaugurated. Now, Jesus doesn't say it here, but that's clear. So let me ask you a question. Where, you know, this happened in John 6. Jesus said, do you want to leave me too? And other disciples said, well, where are we going to go? It's you that have the words of eternal life. I mean, I, I have my mind, and I, I think a lot of this is satanic activity. I think it's he's the tempter. I think this these kinds of things come into my brain at various points, and they used to sometimes lodge there. They they don't have much of a place anymore, so there's not that much more for me anymore, and yet I still have crisis of faith in various areas not about who Jesus was but Jesus again asking his other disciples well do you want to leave as well he had many disciples that were leaving because he wasn't meeting their expectations we're going to talk about that in a minute wasn't playing by their rules wasn't playing by their orchestrated religious rituals that they had wanted to play whatever he wasn't fitting the bill here and so what Jesus asked, do you want to leave? And I think the response is perfect, and I cannot tell you how many times I've uttered this. Well, where am I going to go? Let me just ask you, if you were to play that game this morning and say, I don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, you may want to go to another religion. You may want to pursue some other kind of direction. I've, I've looked at them all. I've studied most of them pretty intently uh, across the board, and I'll just tell you none of them even remotely come close, even remotely come close to the authenticity of the words of Jesus when I read his words. They jump off the page at me. But if I were to just entertain the idea that maybe he wasn't raised from the dead, and I have, not because I thought that there wasn't ground for it, but sometimes as I look back over the 30 plus years of my life that I... Uh, Had given my life to Jesus. There were places that I, I wanted to do my thing the way I wanted to do it. I wanted to construct it, and again, as a function of cognitive dissonance, I had to start to say, "Well," and I began to take Jesus down a notch or two. Well, maybe he wasn't, and those those ideas would pop into my mind. And then at a certain point, I would go, "Wait a minute, where am I going to go now?" Nothing matters. This is all just an illusion. This is just a momentary time here on earth, or again, you hear me say it all the time. Uh, to me, it's either Jesus or I'm just some random chaotic chance that's here for a few years and then gone. I mean, it's it's a death-defying place to be. Turn It would turn me, it may not turn you, it may turn you into someone who, can lead somewhat of a morally constructed life. It would not turn me to that. I can tell you where it would, it would turn me to a place of hedonism. I can promise you. I wouldn't care. Well, you should care about. Well, should, what is should? Should doesn't mean anything. Should, oughta, I mean, if I'm just a chance and you're a chance and all this is an illusion, don't give me any kind of moral constraints because it means nothing to me. I would be in my, I would let my selfishness flourish. Where would I go? It's you who's talking about eternal life, and that's what they said. So if you had some of those moments, you know, when I look back over my life now. I've had a chance to mature in Christ for quite a number of decades now, and I'm not where I want to be, but I'm different. Again, you hear me say it all the time, but I'm different than I was five years ago. Even when we planted this church, I was, I'm a different man than I was five years ago. I'm certainly different than I was 10 or 15 or 20 years. Oh yeah, there's some sustainable qualities, but I'm also different. I'm being changed every single day. I'm a different man. Each day I get up being transformed into his image. But I'll tell you as I look back at it, the more I mature, the more I realize he was in charge of it the whole time. (laughs) I mean, I still have this idea sometimes that look what I've done. I don't have that idea anymore. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I believe. Look what I, how I was able to hang in there. I just don't. I just, I look back and I was doing everything I can to wiggle wiggle out of my calling, to wiggle out of, you know, being a, a, a husband that I should be. I mean all those things. I'm always trying to kind of, you know, just kind of just kind of go over here and get behind that over there and then somehow work my own system. And I just look back and I just go, "But God." But God. But God. And I look at the instances in my life, the crises in my life, and God was faithful even when I wasn't I think about uh, again the archetype of Abraham you know the promise this is actually this is there is some there's some real levity to this story. Now you would read it in, in the book of Genesis and you would go, well, it's this kind of strange that God takes Abraham who really is the archetype of our faith. As Paul says in Romans four, we had to walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Okay. Abraham again, for those of you who don't really know is the very first Jew. He lived 2000 years before the time of Jesus. We're a full 4,000 years removed from this man. Abraham came out of a pagan culture. Uh, as we alluded to last week, becomes really, the the progenitor of the kind of faith that we really have today. It's, it's, It's powerful. It's a picture. And he's still revered by many other religions, even apart from true Christianity. And yet he makes a promise. So again, Abraham comes out of a pagan culture. God invades his life. He responds with what appears to even be appear to be even a God orchestrated kind of a response Uh, was God dealing with Abraham as he was lived under this polytheistic culture I I just think he was a normal pagan guy and just heard a voice and it responded to it but then over time he makes a promises and makes a promise in Genesis 12 that in his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed but then in Genesis 15 something even more interesting happens and this is where I think if you'll allow me it becomes a little bit comical Genesis 15, verse five, he says, so God took Abraham outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. Remember that first song we had this morning? You could see the galaxy out there. I just love those kinds of things. And you know, my love for that. If you've been around church at the red door, I just love looking out through the Hubble and all that. It just makes me fall to my knees and realize how small how small my little things are relative to the creator of the universe and yet I'm created in his image and that just makes me worship I don't understand how those things can be paired how am I created in the image of a God who spoke all those galaxies into existence so he took him outside look look at counts of stars if you're even able to of course he wouldn't they couldn't have fathom they see a few stars out there and they no, there are billions of galaxies what's a galaxy you know I and mean? they said no real understanding at this point and he said, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, you've got to understand, this is the Pauline understanding in the entirety of his, of his journey through Judaism. His understanding of the Tanakh, his, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, was all based upon this. It was that Abraham lived before the law, and God had already seen him righteous because of what he believed And really the New Testament, if if you're to understand the New Testament, it's all predicated on this verse right here. Paul's saying Abraham was deemed righteous and there wasn't even the law. That wouldn't come through the Ten Commandments. That wouldn't come for another 500 years. And God already is saying that Abraham is righteous. And he said, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you the land to possess it. And he said, oh Lord, God, how may I know that I will possess it? And he said, bring me, now here's, this, is, this gets strange, bring me a three-year-old heifer. This is how they used to cut covenant. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And they br- he brought all these things to him and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he didn't cut the birds. I could preach on that, but I won't. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Very strange story. This is how they used to cut covenant. And then they would walk through the two pieces of the animal and said, if we break this binding covenant, this blood covenant, then we'll both be guilty. And may that then happen to us if we break covenant. That was essentially when there's a little bit more detail to it, but that's essentially the bottom line. And then verse 12, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell over Abram. I find that fascinating and funny. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. I don't know if this is a dream, if this is a vision. And God said to Abraham, uh, Abram at this point, uh, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. That's uh, the Egyptians, and I will judge the nation who they serve, and then they'll come out with many possessions. And as for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace and will be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, they'll return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a flaming torch, which passed through the pieces. On that day, Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land and from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, what's fascinating to me is that Abram is asleep. (laughs) This is now what does he bring to the table? He's a pagan, just like everybody else, just like I was. He just—he's a, not a god-fearing man. He's a, maybe he's a, a deity-fearing man in some way. And a voice comes, and all he does is really what? What credit can he really take? I believe God, but in believing God, God set it up anyway. It was a set-up job. Many of you can believe that. Maybe you're even here this morning or watching uh, on online or on what. Well, well, you just go, I, I wasn't pursuing him. He was pursuing me. It was all him. I look back, it was a set-up job. It wasn't my pursuit. It was his pursuit of me. In fact, I was, Paul says, I was spiritu- you were spiritually dead. Or you can say I was spiritually completely asleep. Maybe I thought I was awake, but I was asleep. He's cutting covenant with me in a sense, even when I'm asleep. Now, is that you or is that God. See, was, was John the Baptist, were you in your crisis of faith? Is it you doing the saving? of you or is it God? doing? Who's doing the lion's share of the work here? I'm telling you, it's all him. And the longer I walk with God, the more I realize as I look back over my life, I take credit for nothing. It's like Jesus said, the servant at the end of his day will look back and go, I just did what I was supposed to do. There's no credit in it. I mean, I don't, I, well, you know, I've given my life to the gospel and the proclamation. No, forget it. I look back and I go, look what God has so graciously." done in such an undeserving asleep person and here's the paradox that is the greatest thing for your mental health that you'll ever do let me explain why if you imagine that it is up to you and that the dominant force of your salvation is even your ability to hang in there and keep working and all that, you will have more crisis of faith than you could have ever imagined. So you will you will tend to fall off on this horse one side or the other. If you don't really understand that it's God that is the savior of the world and it's him in pursuit of you, you will, one number one, you'll just beat up yourself. You won't understand the sin nature in you that still is there through Romans 7 through your body of death he calls it and you'll be really perplexed that you're supposed to be a Jesus person and you still have all of these horrific thoughts and activities and actions that sometime come out of your own body i.e. driving in on highway 111 mid-season you know with some purple hairs that are in front of you and the, you know that barely can look over the steering wheel and they're really slow and, and maybe some of you are them and you're mad at the guy driving around you and honking, that might prayerfully not be me. It would be my wife. No, I'm just kidding, Laura. I'll take, I'll take the punch on that one when we get it. So do you, are you with me? But if you fall off on the other side and say, look what I've done over my life, then you're, you're also in grave danger because there will be so much dissonance in your soul because you, it takes a really deluded person to imagine that somehow they are a really good person. You know, the, the, the idea, the understanding of just my own sinful nature is still clinging to me through this body of death. Even though I have a new birth experience, the understanding of that and that God's orchestrating this is actually leads to my mental health. So when I'm failing or when I'm having a crisis, I can still worship. Or when I might perceive that my life's going pretty well and I've done some amazing things for the Lord, maybe that, but I still will walk in great humility. I never get too far out of bounds emotionally or mentally. This is important. And by the way, you will never be able to really share the gospel unless you understand this is a foundational understanding. God's doing the saving. You'll think it's you that's saving your neighbor or you that's, you know, responsible for your children or you or you or you. And you'll take on guilt or you'll be triumphant. And and what what I look back is that I can tell you from a, as a father, I look back with more guilt as a father than I did. But I then I have to look back and go, Lord, I'm trusting you for. My children, and my now I'm soon to be a grandfather here. I mean, all these kinds of things. I, I I've got to tell you, I, I've got to look back. I'd would have some mental issues if I didn't understand what we're talking about. Does that make sense? Listen to some of the language here. Paul tells the Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 1 11 through twelve. To this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. It's not that you don't have any activity in your life. Of course you do. So that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. We want to see your life be a repository for the very power and the authority of the living creator of all things to live in you so that the world can see it. But he's in you according to the grace. It's undeserved of God and the Lord Jesus. It came to you without any merit upon your own. None. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, who began the good work in you. He who began a good work in you. Not, I found a good Bible study and I made the decision. And that's true from our perspective. But we have to pull back, certainly in retrospect, and go, he began the good work in me. And he will perfect it until the day of Christ. Now, you say, well, this is just going to give license to people. People are going to go crazy if you tell them this kind of thing. They're going to go out and say, well, it's his responsibility. It's God's... That doesn't do that in me. When I start to really understand this, you know what this makes me want to do? Worship him. And it makes me want to please him more. When I understand all that he's showing, all the grace he's throwing my way, when I'm trying to squirm and wiggle out of stuff. And I fail, and I do, and I fail every single day. And yet, I—if I, you don't think I have Philippians one six running through the course of my mind—I tell you this all the time. Why are we such a? A word driven, you talk, man, you talk a lot of Bible verse. It's the matrix with which you must see life or your life will fall apart. You cannot do it based upon just a a simple creed or uh, a connection to some kind of religious institution or your religious rituals or whatever your background, denominationalism, Catholicism, whatever. And I know we have all, you cannot cling to that. Let Jesus speak for himself. 1 Thessalonians 5 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, clean you up entirely. May he do it. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of Jesus. How? Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. I don't know how it could be more clear. Are you doing it or is he doing it? Was John the Baptist doing it or was God doing it through John the Baptist? That's why the Lord graciously could come down and say, oh, this is a great man. Don't think poorly of him, disciples. In fact, he's the greatest among all men. And the prophets were talking about John. John something incredibly special instead of how could you? and then lastly 1 Corinthians chapter 1 I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Jesus than everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge pretty comprehensive even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus who will also confirm you to the end your life is a book chapter one, right? Verse one in the beginning, God created and you can fill your name in. It's soon to be. And I believe he's already created though. He's not out of the womb yet. My grandson Emerson, who will be born sometime in September, God willing. And that's how it will begin. He was conceived and then and it, in his life and, and then there will be a chapter. And although it's, unimaginable to think even before is born but there will be a chapter that will conclude and then Emerson breathed his last and the end who's going to confirm Emerson from the day one to the day end God will confirm Emerson God will do the saving are you with me God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with Jesus you were called He's faithful. He's going to do it. He's going to confirm you to the end. He's the one that's going to complete the process he began in you. And that's what Jesus is essentially looking at you when you're suffering from a faith crisis. Just think of John. So this is this is a powerful thing. You know, if you don't understand this, you will have double vision. You know, just can't. You will not be able to see clearly. It'll be very, very challenged, very, very challenging to you. And before we close, I wanna, I wanna finish uh, us the reading here that we have this morning, because there's something powerful that we'll parlay as we wind this down. We'll parlay into your understanding of what Jesus is talking about. Many people just do not understand this this parable that he tells, or call it whatever you want, he, he likens it to. Now, it's very strange because uh, some, in fact, m- many biblical scholars believe that he might have been drawing from one of Aesop's fables. And I know that sounds bizarre. Jesus is not relying on Aesop's fable. It's clearly a, an adaptation. But it wouldn't have been unusual for Jesus to use the kind of language he used agrarian language. Why? Because people were out planting things. If, he had, if Jesus' time to come to the earth, at the proper time would have been now, he probably would have used computer language and maybe said hashtag, heaven forbid, or something. I don't know what that even means. I'm the people on the progressive commercials where they say, don't be like your parents, and they're trying to teach them if you've seen those. You know, I, I'm definitely the parent. You know, I'm their parents. They don't know how to pronounce quinoa, Hanoa, You know, I, I mean, that it's it's hilarious. But he would have been using that kind of language today. He's just... That this would have been understood all over. Aesop lived about 600 years before the time of Jesus. He was believed to be a slave in Greece, and he was an amazing storyteller, a fable teller, and he told some different stories. And I think Jesus, at least in part, drew some of this because it would have been all over the Mediterranean by now, and people would have known and, and realized, again, he's not relying on him. He's just using language to communicate. Not all scholars agree, but I think it's in some ways uh, fairly clear, at least in my mind. So Luke seven twenty-nine. you ready? Okay, seventh inning stretch, everybody. No, don't, don't do it. It'll be, you know, here we go. Are you ready? Come on now. Seven twenty-nine. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, you talk about a terrifying indictment rejected God's purpose for themselves. We're going to explain. Jesus is going to explain what he means by that. Not having been baptized by John. Hmm. What did John's baptism represent? A willingness to acquiesce with what we just talked about their sinner status not their good guy status see when john says come be baptized he's saying repent change your mind you guys are you guys are bad you're 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 way off track you even you religious or you boy you think you've got it all figured out but you're playing by your own rules You've got to humble yourself. The gospels preached to the poor, and if you're not poor and you think you're spiritually have everything going for you, I don't care what your background or your pedigree or when you went through training as a child, religious training or went to religious school. It's all irrelevant. One thing is important. You've got to start with the baptism of John. But John's baptism represented repentance, and it's a step that too many times the church, over the, certainly in the West, has overlooked. It's like God wants to help you with your vision of your life and give you some principles that you can fulfill your dreams. That is not the gospel. The gospel starts with you are a million miles away from God, regardless of what you think about your own status as being a good person. Jesus goes on, and this is the important part. This is the strange uh, Aesop fable kind of language. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? Well, they're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you. Well, you didn't dance, and we sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he's got a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. What did Jesus just say? What did Jesus just say? Well, Aesop had told... And this is why I think some believe this is true. This would have been common language. Many people would have known this story. It's very short. It's just a paragraph. Uh, He told... uh, Aesop told a a little story called The Fisherman or a Fable and His Flute. By the way, a fable usually uses animals of some sort and kind of personifies, you know, gives them, anthropomorphizes them and makes them kind of people-like. And and then it usually ends in a good moral. That is not the purpose of Jesus' teaching. Jesus' parables... which are different than fables, are also kind of something that comes alongside something to give spiritual insight. But they're not just about a moral. It's more about a spiritual message that's trying to be communicated. Are you following me? That's the difference between a fable and a parable. This is a fable. just ends in a moral. A fisherman skilled in music, this is called a fisherman and his flute, a fisherman skilled in music took his flute and his nets to the seashore. And standing on a projecting rock, he played several tunes in the hope that the fish... Aesop again, attracted by the melody would on their own accord dance into the net, which he had placed below. At last, having long waited in vain, he laid aside his flute and casting his net into the sea, made an excellent haul of fish. And when he saw them leaping about in the net upon the rock, he said, oh, you, mo- you most perverse creatures. When I piped, you would not dance. And now that I have ceased, you do so merrily. So would Jesus have been drawn? I don't know. I, I, I can't be definitive and nobody really can, but that would have been co- most people around the Mediterranean during this time of Jesus would have heard these by now. These would have worked into the system. You know, this idea, well, we tried to play, we tried to play a flute for it and you wouldn't dance. And, you know, and then Jesus adapted it and added a few things and that's all we have. So I'm not trying to make a case one way or the other on uh, Aesop's origins and Jesus adaptation of this. What he does say is very clear. And the best I can, give you as a picture. It would be when I go to Israel sometimes, uh, these, you find yourself surrounded by, uh, I've had this occur where, you know, sometimes children are involved in trying to get you to give them money or do something. Or, or sometimes when I was in college, we used to go down to Juarez, Mexico, when I was in Texas and we'd go across the border. And I mean, I had a friend that got thrown in jail. That's a whole nother story, but, and they didn't, we didn't have him I was like, where did he go? He was on our golf team. He was gone for like a month. Um, but we'd go down there and then of course the kids would run out and you know the parents were back there and they were making the money but yeah how can you not give these precious little kids you know and I and I think that's the best kind of picture I can get I don't know all what was going on and why Jesus would have used this Were the was this normative in some way but he does give us this picture that these kids are saying they're upset because they're out in the marketplace and they're playing a flute and nobody's dancing I we're trying to do this and you won't enter into our game here we're trying to get you to go along with with this. And then, then they, maybe they're playing the game of funeral, right? Somebody's died and they're playing a dirge or something. Who knows what they're doing and nobody will be mourning. And so the children are constantly upset that nobody's paying attention to what nobody's joining into their games. And Jesus likens that to them. And he's saying, it's just like that. What did he mean? Well, it's very simple. He said, we like to construct our own rules and our own regulations. We, be- we believe in a God who does this. And let me tell you something. I don't care whether it's Hollywood or whatever. Because Hollywood likes to have the moral high ground these days. I don't know if you've seen that. But they want to have the moral high grounds in these areas. And then they make their own rules about all these other things. So they up in what, you know, and it becomes kind of moral relativism. And, and uh, But they like to have the moral high ground. They create their own And if Jesus can fit in and they can pull some things out, they'll even maybe talk a little bit or quote Jesus on something, but they're going to construct their own thing. And then, and, and religions do this as well. Even forms of Christianity or offshoots of Christianity construct their own thing. My point to you is that let Jesus speak for Jesus. I don't care what your background, what your pedigree, what you understand. Let Jesus speak for Jesus. Study Jesus. Study what he said. The fullness of what he said. And in this case, here's the indictment. Are you ready? Here's how we close this morning. Here's the indictment. The indictment is this You guys have already prefabricated your own rules, your own regulations, whether they were religious Jews or otherwise. You have got your own constraints about who God is, how he operates in humanity, and it doesn't matter. John came in an ascetic lifestyle. No wine touched his lips. He didn't marry. He was clearly wasn't into materialism or anything else. And he goes out in the wilderness and you guys say, that guy's got a demon. He's not playing by your rules. And then on, on the other hand, the son of man, me, I come and well, I'm doing, I'm at weddings and I'm hanging out and I, I'm with drinkers and, and gamblers and who knows what and all and prostitutes and every other kind of thing. This seems to be mine. And you guys see, see, he's the, he's the bad guy. He's hanging out with all the unholy people. It doesn't matter because you don't have ears to hear and you don't have eyes to see. And we do the exact same thing. I see, I come into this valley. I've got friends on the the mission field. I alluded to one last week, 1040 window. and And Church of the Red Door even supports some people in the Middle East and various places, some very difficult places to be. And there are some times that I think about my own life and I go, I'm in Palm Springs. You know, I drive a nice car. Uh, I have enough food, uh, money to f- put food on the table. And, uh, you know, and, and I grew up in the in the country club and as a, as a golf guy and all this kind of stuff. I am a million miles away from aesthetic lifestyle. And I'm telling you right now, there are people in this desert who already constructed and gotten a worldview of what they would, well, what they need to see in someone who is actually going to be an authentic Jesus person and clearly can't be that Cranford guy because you know what if he was really cared about if he really cared about it, he'd be down there he'd sell everything he has Jesus said to the rich young ruler sell everything yet he and he'd go down and he'd he'd be in the mold he'd leave the desert he'd go out in the, in the wilderness or he'd go wherever and he'd be he'd be preaching to the very poorest of the poor and he'd be trying to feed him he'd be a mother Teresa kind of figure and then yet, can you also, the indictments that were leveled against Mother Teresa, she was overly ascetic. She wouldn't even allow, she. they put some carpet in the place one time and she had them to tear it out. But she, now, and to say, see, see, she's, somehow she's got a demon. I mean, are you following me? There are people, it wouldn't matter what kind of person came to them. They would already have prefabricated something that would disallow them from even hearing the words of Jesus. That's the indictment that Jesus is giving. Played a dirge, they wouldn't mourn. Played a flute, they wouldn't dance. What constraints have you put on God? I'm going to ask you this question this morning. All right, is there something that you have constrained yourself? Well, I haven't really seen it. Or, or and, and all you do is sit back and give indictments to those who are trying to follow Jesus. Say, if it was really authentic, then he wouldn't do that or she wouldn't hang out with those people or he wouldn't look like that or he wouldn't drive that kind of car or do that kind of thing. I'm just telling you, you've already decided in your heart not to listen to the words of Jesus. And that was the indictment that Jesus is giving here. In the end, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. What does that mean? In the end, are people coming to know Jesus? Paul was clear in 1 Corinthians in the verse, chapter 9. Become, I become all things to all men, that by all means I may be some saved. Save some, right? I want to be a participant in the gospel. That's what he's saying here. He said, sometimes I become like this, and I'm almost like a chameleon, whatever it takes. I could dress up like a homeless guy and, and try to get into one of these fancy country clubs around here. Probably wouldn't let me in. Or if I dressed like this and drove up in a nice car and went somewhere and then they would say, he's not one of us. See, God sends different people into different places. And in the end, make sure you're not constructing something around your ability to hear and allow Jesus to tell you what he says about reality. Let Jesus speak for Jesus. Have you done that this morning? Human beings, well, we're just experts at making rules to ensure they are never able to see who Jesus really was or hear what was really said. Don't be one of those people this morning. Lay down your rules and all your preconceived ideas in every area of your life about Jesus. This truly is a life and death decision for you and for those who will hear the gospel through your life. Lord, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this community. Thank you for the privilege to serve this valley we call the Coachella Valley and and then the residual folks who live outside the valley during the season. So Lord, I pray for that we're going to have a glorious week and I pray that you'd be lifted up. Help us be the repositories of your glory this week in Jesus name. Amen. Have a wonderful week and uh, we love you.